Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. First off, before we begin, I'd like to say we at Strange Matters hope everyone had a great holiday season and new year. Seeing as this is the start of a new year and also begins the second year of Strange Matters, I gave myself a few New Year's resolutions concerning the podcast, including increasing the quality of the show, producing more frequent episodes, as well as working on some fun stuff for you longtime and devoted listeners of the podcast, like possibly producing some type of video format episodes and putting together a merch store, since some of you have been asking about that kind of stuff. If any of you have your own ideas on how Eric and I can further improve the podcast or ways to change it for the better, feel free to shoot us an email or message on Facebook or Twitter. And now let's get into the episode. In this episode, I will be discussing a mysterious area known as the Bennington Triangle. This region has achieved some notoriety due to a number of missing people that disappeared under unknown circumstances, all last seen near the same area. The region in question resides in the state of Vermont, and the term Bennington Triangle was coined by the New England author Joseph Citro, who has written several books on the subject. In this episode, I will be going over the history of this small tract of land, along with the cases of disappearances that it is known for. This subject was a listener suggestion, so I'd like to thank Nancy for sharing this idea with us. While beginning my research on the Bennington Triangle, one thing that immediately made this case interesting to me is that it is pretty close to neighboring a similarly renowned area called the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. I've covered the Bridgewater Triangle in an earlier episode of Strange Matters discussing local myths and urban legends as part of our listener story series. Now, the Bridgewater Triangle is more known for its paranormal aspects, as within its regions there have been a number of accounts and witnesses claiming to see spirits, ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, and a whole bunch of stuff. The Bennington Triangle's history can be considered just as creepy as it had its own reports of similar strange phenomenon. Unlike the Bridgewater Triangle in the neighboring state, the Bennington Triangle does not have such clear-defined borders, but is more just a general reference to an area centered around Glastonbury Mountain and contains the nearby towns and localities. Some of the towns in the area were former thriving industrial centers, but are now nothing more than just ghost towns. The Bennington Triangle, which has been also called the Triangle of Doom, resides in a small area in the southwestern portion of Vermont. The area is known for its beauty of nature and is a favorite place by both fishermen and hikers. The Triangle contains a number of small towns, notably Bennington, along with a few others like Woodford and Somerset. Bennington itself is quite the historic site, as it is one of the oldest chartered towns in colonial America and contains Vermont's first church. Until the past two decades, the area was more known for its nature scenes and quaint towns rather than anything more sinister. However, in 1992, on a public radio broadcast, an author by the name of Joseph A. Citro began discussing a number of unsolved and unusual disappearances from the area, and he was the first to refer to this zone as the Bennington Triangle. Depending on what area and times one could consider to be part of the canon of the Bennington Triangle, there are between 5 and 10 missing persons cases that run from the 1920s to the 50s. 
The exact number is hard to know for certain, as there are rumors that several people went missing in the 20s and 30s, but there are no records for them, beyond word of mouth amongst the people in the area. There are also tales of people going missing as early as colonial times, of settlers exploring through the woods, never to come back. It is hard to know whether some of these alleged disappearances actually did happen, or if they are rather just urban legends that were tacked on later. These cases of disappearances would just add to the number of dark and creepy tales that are also known in the area. Since the 19th century, there have been stories of a number of unexplained events and sightings, such as UFO encounters, shadow people lurking in the woods, and unexplained lights and sounds. The native people of the region considered the place cursed and avoided it whenever possible. Loggers of the area had their own tales of so-called wild men running through the woods. Others have claimed to have seen such cryptozoological entities like the Thunderbird or Bigfoot. Still, there are tales of people catching deadly diseases after venturing to the woods or returning from a hike completely insane and violent. As interesting and creepy as some of those stories are, most would be considered to be merely myths or urban legends. However, there is something about this area that makes it stand out from other similar regions, like the previously mentioned Bridgewater Triangle, and that is the story of people suddenly vanishing within its borders. The main focus of this case will be centered around the years 1945 to 1950, as it is within this five-year time span that the majority of these recorded disappearances took place. It was these particular years, and the cases within it, that have put the Bennington Triangle on the map as an area that has something dark and mysterious surrounding it. The first recorded and confirmed disappearance was that of Mitty Rivers in 1945. Mitty was a 74-year-old man who went out hunting in the Bennington area. Mitty was not out by himself, actually, but rather was leading a small group of hunters through the mountains, as he was the most familiar with the region. At one point on the return trip of the hunt, Mitty was scouting out ahead of the group and eventually went beyond the line of sight of the others. The group of hunters continued on, expecting to catch up to the older man, but they could not find him anywhere on the trail. The authorities were informed, and soon a wide search of the area was conducted to try and locate Mitty. During the search, a single rifle cartridge was found in a stream that matched the type of ammo Mitty was carrying for his rifle. It is not known when or why this cartridge came out to be in the stream, but the general thought is Mitty either accidentally pulled it out of his pocket while searching for something else, or it fell out on its own at one point while he bent over, perhaps filling his canteen with water from the stream. After the search, there was no further evidence of anything belonging to Mitty, nor were there any obvious trails of him which could answer what direction he went in. No one could figure out what had happened to Mitty, as no one thought he could get lost so easily since he knew the area so well, and if he had a sudden or life-threatening health issue, it would have occurred along the trail back to where the hunt had started from. It was also unlikely he could have been attacked by some wild animal, as he was supposedly not far ahead of the main group, and any cries for help would have easily been heard along with the fact that his body should have been found nearby, or at least signs of a struggle or blood on the ground. There was just no satisfactory answer as to what happened to poor Mitty. It would seem as if the man had simply vanished in the woods. As strange as this disappearance was, it was just the beginning of a dark string of mysteries in the area. The next case happened just over a year after Mitty Rivers went missing, and it involves an 18-year-old young lady by the name of Paula Weldon. 
Paula was the oldest of four daughters of a well-known industrial engineer and designer, William Archibald Weldon. Before her disappearance, Paula was in her second year studying at Bennington College in 1946. On December 1st of that year, she had plans to take a lengthy day hike along the Long Trail Road, which runs the length of the state, and is the oldest long-distance trail in the United States. She had plans to set out from Woodford Hollow and head north in the direction of Glastonbury Mountain. On December 1st, she finished up her shift at the dining hall in the Commons on campus, where she worked part-time, afterwards returning to her dorm. Her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, would later say that Paula was in a bit of a down state, perhaps having a bad day, so she suggested to her that she should take a walk. Paula apparently agreed, and after some studying, changed her clothes and shoes before heading out. Those who saw her during this time noted that she did not have any heavy jacket or clothing for extreme cold weather. During that day, the weather wasn't too severe, rather just a bit chilly, but it was expected to get much colder come nightfall. As Paula left, she did not take along any extra bags or clothing, and from her talk with those on that day, it would seem that she would only be gone a matter of hours. Paula left campus and hitched a ride one or more times until she got to a spot near a bridge in between Bennington and Woodford Hollow. Here, she was picked up by a local man named Lewis Knapp, who drove her along State Route 9 and dropped her off a few miles away from the start of the long trail. From this point, she either hitched again or simply walked the remaining distance until she arrived at the start of the trail. There, Paula was seen by a group of hikers near the start of the trail, as they were walking back down as she was starting heading up. As they passed, Paula asked them a few questions about their hike and about the long trail before continuing on up. She was seen heading north on the trail as the afternoon sun started to set. At one point, an older couple that was walking the trail, believing a girl matched Paula's description, was just a bit ahead of them, walking the same direction. However, after one of the curves in the trail, they suddenly lost sight of the girl and would not come across her again. The next day, authorities were informed by several that Paula Weldon had not been seen that day, missing out on her work and classes, and that no one had actually seen her since she had left for her hike the day before. Her roommate Elizabeth had at first thought Paula had gone to the library to pull an all-nighter, but she grew worried when her roommate did not come back home in the morning. Paula's wealthy and powerful father quickly traveled to the college to try to get to the bottom of the situation. A massive hunt was thrown together by the local police in an attempt to find the missing student. The college was closed for several days as both faculty and students pitched in to help. Hundreds of people took shifts searching the campus, the surrounding area, but especially along the trails. However, at the end, there was just no luck. A common theory at the time immediately following her disappearance was that perhaps she had gotten lost or accidentally wandered off the main path while hiking. Extensive and careful searches of the trail and its branching paths were covered, and aircraft flew overhead to try and spot anything down below that would give the police a clue. In fact, this would be the first time that a helicopter was used in a search effort in Vermont. Unfortunately, even after all this, there was absolutely no trace of the young woman ever to be found. After the initial searches failed, a $5,000 reward was offered to anyone with information, and the FBI did its part by trying to assist with the search operation as well. However, there was still no evidence or clues as to what happened to the college student who had suddenly gone missing. It was considered quite odd that anyone would just vanish like that walking on the trail, as there was a decent amount of other people walking along it also. 
a number of which would came forward later saying they did see Paula at one point or another. Since the trail was not difficult for the average person or particularly secluded, it would seem unlikely that she could either injure herself badly or be abducted somehow right off the path. Also, since Paula did not bring along heavy clothing, it was assumed that she was not planning on staying out past sunset, as it was known that snow was coming that night, along with a sharp drop in temperature. After a while had gone by, and without any sign of Paula showing back up, theories and rumors began flying. Some people claimed that Paula had been in a flighty mood right before disappearance, and was talking about starting somewhere anew, so it was a possibility that she had just run off to start a new life. A few close to her said that Paula was having trouble in her family life with her wealthy father, so perhaps she just wanted to leave all the stress of having to live up to her dad's high standards behind and start fresh. There were other rumors that she had been walking the trail to meet up with a secret lover and that they were both planning on going far away to be together. Her roommate Elizabeth and several other close friends, however, said they were not aware of any boyfriend or love interest of Paula, so either she was keeping all this a secret from everybody or more likely, in my opinion, this theory is just conjecture. Still, others said it was more likely that she either died from some injuries on the trail, or had gone off into the woods to kill herself, or maybe even was kidnapped by a lunatic stalking the trail. However, beyond people's opinions and unbased rumors, there really is no evidence to back up any of these claims. There has since been some criticism on how the case was handled by the authorities. Because Vermont did not have a central police force at the time, it did take quite a while for the separate agencies and investigators to get together. Also, the fact that the local police were not properly trained on how to handle such a missing person case was seen as a point of contrition. Modern investigators have said perhaps if the police had tried to dig into the relationship of Paula to the rest of her family, especially her father, that might have something to do with it. Also, it could have been useful to know from the school's medical office if she was on any type of medication, such as antidepressants. In the end, though Paula would never be found, the publicity that this case caused would lead to the formation of the Vermont State Police, a move which undoubtedly would help other cases in the future. Unfortunately, as of today, we still have no idea what happened to Paula Weldon after she started her hike on the long trail. The next weird occurrence in the Bennington Triangle happened three years later to the day that Paula Weldon went missing. On December 1st of 1949, a man named James E. Tedford suffered a similar fate. James was a war veteran and lived in Bennington's soldier's home. On that day, he was returning from a trip to St. Albans to visit his family. James had bought tickets to ride a bus back to where he lived. He would be one of 14 passengers that the bus was carrying that day. According to several riders of the bus, James had gotten on the bus at St. Albans and was still seen inside after it took off from its last stop, before arriving at its destination of Bennington. A few would later mention that they remember seeing James dozing off in his sleep as the bus headed to Bennington. However, upon arrival at its final destination, James Tedford was just gone, nowhere to be found on the bus. Somewhere and somehow, he had just vanished between the bus leaving the last stop and arriving at its end in Bennington. Stranger still, the luggage that he had come on board with was still in the overhead luggage rack, and a bus timetable that he had been holding was left open in the seat he had been sitting at. I've also seen some sources say even his wallet and money was left on the seat, but that could just be an exaggeration tacked on after the years. 
When later questioned, none of the other passengers or the driver could give any explanation as to what happened to James or how he had gotten off the bus without anyone noticing. It would seem to those around him that the veteran had simply vanished into thin air. One factor that might play a part in his disappearance was that his family and wife noted that James seemed very depressed on his visit up to them in St. Albans, and had said that he really didn't want to go back to his residence back in Bennington. Also, at one of the stops, an old friend of James had seen him, and they briefly conversed before he went back on the bus. So we have at least one very credible witness, or someone who actually knew James, seeing him board the bus along the way. Another important aspect to keep in mind on this odd case is to consider that the soldier's home did not attempt to contact James's family about his absence until a week after he was due. Because of this, including the time it took for the police to gather information and his timeline and round up the witnesses, meant that the questionings all happened between a week and a half and two weeks after James's bus ride. It's possible in that time that perhaps someone did notice him suddenly go off, or act strangely, but had just forgotten about it in the time span afterwards. Also, it could be that one or several of the passengers that the police could not find in their investigation did in fact see James get off at some point, but could never give their statement later. Logically, it would seem much more likely that James either slept off the bus before its arrival in Bennington, or actually did not get back on after its last stop, and the other passengers were just mistaken. That seems more reasonable than a grown man just vanishing into thin air or dematerializing in his bus seat. I'd rather not try to make up any outlandish theories of my own, but taking in fact everything I've heard in this case, I think maybe due to his depressed state, James began to feel suicidal or just overly depressed on his trip back and decided to skip out on the last leg of his journey home. If you follow that line of thinking, maybe this visit up to his family was some type of last goodbye type situation, or perhaps something happened there that sent him over the edge. Another darkish theory that you can make is that maybe during his last rest stop, someone attacked or killed him, and that was why he never got back on the bus. Now, as interesting as it can be to brainstorm a bunch of potential answers, since there is virtually no evidence or concrete witness accounts on the bus ride, just about any explanation or theory you can make up is as good as any other. Though the James Tedford case is no doubt strange, because there is no definite record of when exactly he vanished, it is unknown if James actually went missing in the Bennington Triangle, or if it had happened before arrival. But, due to the incredibly odd circumstances of his disappearance, it is usually connected with the other cases I have covered. Regardless of what theory you can come up with or like the best, what is known for sure is that after James Tedford boarded that bus in St. Albans to head home, he was never heard or seen from ever again. The next disappearance would not happen for some three years after the Tedford bus incident. On October 12th, Columbus Day in 1950, a young eight-year-old boy named Paul Jepson was riding with his mother in the family truck. His parents were part-time caretakers for the local dump. Paul's mother had brought him along on some errands as she drove the truck out to feed some of the pigs that she was tending for at the dump, leaving the boy to his own devices back at the truck and told him to stay nearby. After about an hour, she returned to the truck, but her little son was nowhere to be seen. Just as with Mitty Rivers and Paula Weldon, search parties were organized to search the nearby area. Just as with all the previous cases, however, absolutely no trace or evidence of Paul Jepson would ever be found. Paul's mother told police that he was wearing a bright red jacket, which was actually similar to the jacket that Paula Weldon had been wearing, 
which in theory should have made it easy for searchers to spot him. According to Paul's father, the boy had recently been saying frequently that he wanted to go to the mountains, suggesting perhaps the boy had suddenly had a desire to go hiking up through the woods. Some bloodhounds are brought in to help with the search, and they did manage to follow a trail for several miles until it reached a highway before the scent wore off. The path that the hounds were following from the family truck to where the trail vanished actually does create a trajectory that points in the direction of Glastonbury Mountain, perhaps giving some credence to the father's words about his son's interest in going there. Unfortunately, heavy rains and mudslides made it hard for the search party to continue the day of the boy's disappearance, and this could also be the reason why his scent wore off just a short distance from where he left the truck. Just as with the other cases, there are a number of theories that have been put forth regarding Paul Jepson's sudden disappearance. Some believe that since the boy was wandering around close to the landfill, which housed a number of pigs, that perhaps he had gotten lost when trying to return to the dump, and unfortunately passed out or died in a location that made it possible that the pigs would actually eat the little boy. Now, most people know that pigs aren't particularly picky eaters, so if this was the case, it could explain why there was absolutely nothing left of Paul. Another possibility that was brought up in the papers at the time suggested that perhaps his parents had actually murdered the young boy, either by accident or intentionally. If true, the parents would most likely know of places within the dump to hide the body so it would never be found, or again, maybe they just fed him to the pigs to get rid of all the evidence. Just as with the other theories for the other disappearances, however, none of these explanations really make sense and have any proof behind them at all. We just have no idea what really happened to Paul Jepson, whether he did try to hike up a mountain by himself and died along the way, gotten picked up or kidnapped along the road, or in fact did die in the landfill by one means or another, they're all just entirely unknown. The fate of Paul Jepson remains yet another mystery tied to the Bennington Triangle. The fifth and final recorded disappearance associated with the Triangle occurred just 16 days after Paul Jepson went missing. On October 28, 1950, 53-year-old Frida Langer was staying at a family campsite with several relatives and friends. At one point during her stay, she went off into the woods on a hike with her cousin, Herbert Eisner. As the pair were trying to cross a stream, Frida slipped and fell in, getting completely wet. She told her cousin Herbert to stay put and that she would quickly go back to the campsite and change into dry clothes and catch back up to him. Herbert agreed, watching his cousin walk off in the direction of their campsite, and started to wait by the stream. After quite some time had passed, Herbert gave up waiting and also walked back towards their site, wanting to see what the holdup was. When he got back to the campsite, however, Frida was not there. In fact, when he talked to the other family members, Frida had never come back from the hike at all. Somewhere and somehow, in the short distance between the stream and the family site, just a few hundred meters, she had just disappeared without a trace. Once again, massive searches were orchestrated in an attempt to find the missing woman over the next couple weeks. Crews would branch off, combing the areas between the campsite and the spot she was last seen. Helicopters patrolled overhead to help with the search as well. Still, there was just no sign of where she had went or what had happened to her. However, unlike the previous four cases covered, this one would actually have a conclusion, or at least part of one. Several months later, in May of 1951, a body was found by some hunters near the Somerset Reservoir, nearby to where the family campsite had been. Testing proved that this body did in fact belong to Frida Langer. Though her body was found, this would almost raise more questions than answers. 
Due to the time that the body had been left out for exposure to the elements over the winter, Frida's corpse was decayed to the point that no cause of death could be determined. Also, some found it odd that her body was found in an area that had already been rigorously searched numerous times by a large amount of people. The fact that she could just suddenly disappear and die confused those who were with her at the time. Herbert Eisner would tell police that Frida was not at all injured from her little slip into the stream, and considering it was broad daylight and they were only a short distance away from camp, along with the fact that Frida was very familiar with the area, no one could come up with a possibility as to how or why she could just become lost or injured in some way. Frida's case does stand apart from the other four disappearances in that we do know what her final fate was. I would say that the majority of people listening will believe that death was the fate of the other four missing people as well, but as I've mentioned, there's just no way to conclusively believe that over any other possibilities. Though Frida's fate is known, the mystery surrounding her death still makes it just as intriguing as the other four cases. We do know the start and end points, but the unknown gap in the middle makes it perhaps the most interesting case of the whole bunch. Now, along with these main five cases that I've covered so far, there are several more that are often attributed to the Bennington Triangle. Some sources or stories of the Triangle actually start in 1942, three years before Mitty Rivers would go missing. That starts with the disappearance of a young boy named Melvin Hills. Supposedly, Melvin went off on a walk by himself by the woods and would never be seen again. However, this tale has been debunked, as for one, Melvin Hills was not his real name, but rather he was just Melvin Hill. Also, apparently, he and his family were either not native to Vermont or moved away, as he was seen some weeks later living in Massachusetts. Also, there was another popular tale of three hunters, three men who went missing in the woods around Glastonbury Mountain. This, too, has been revealed to have been a bit of an exaggeration, as the three men were simply stuck in the mountain for one night, and managed to come back down just a day late. Along with these two, other cases of disappearances have been tacked on to the legend of the Bennington Triangle, some a long time before Mitty Rivers first went missing, other in more modern times, but none of them have been confirmed or recorded, and are most likely just urban legends. Now that the history of these five bizarre disappearances are well known, Many people have come up with their own theories and explanations as to what happened to these people in the area of the Bennington Triangle. Some of these answers are more outlandish than others, but as always, I like to present all possible explanations, no matter how hard they are to believe. One possible answer is that a Bigfoot or Sasquatch-like creature was behind one or more of the disappearances of the Bennington Triangle. The area does have quite its history of sightings of such creatures, though of course none of these have been verified. According to one expert on the subject, a Sasquatch could easily snatch an unsuspecting person off the trail, killing them instantly due to their immense strength, and haul the body away. There actually is a local story of a man who was kidnapped off a campsite by such creatures and held captive for days before escaping. This tale happened two decades before Mitty Rivers would go missing, and is the first case of a potential Bigfoot-like creature abducting someone. This expert went on to say, it would just be absurd to rule out this possibility without looking into it more deeply, especially given the context of sightings and intimidation behavior that we have here in the historical records. As interesting and fun as it is to think of an unknown creature stalking the woods, there are, of course, problems with this theory. The first being that Sasquatches are still considered cryptids and that no concrete evidence of their existence is known. Second, there were no pieces of evidence to connect these creatures with the missing people, such as there were no giant footprints found in the area that those five people went missing, 
nor any supposed sightings of any Bigfoot-like animal during the time that these cases occurred. So if not a Bigfoot, perhaps another known animal could be behind some of the disappearances then. Some have stated that a mountain lion might be the culprit to at least one of the missing persons cases. A local fishing and hunting guide has given his own opinion, and that he absolutely thinks that a mountain lion could kill and drag a body off the trail suddenly. Though this explanation is perhaps more believable than Bigfoot, there are still some problems with it. Again, if a big cat set on one or more of these people, there should have been signs of a struggle or attack. If a mountain lion did grab Paula Weldon or Mitty Rivers, there should have been some evidence found along the trails. Blood, bits of flesh, ripped clothing, anything. However, nothing like this was ever found. Perhaps then, what was stalking these unsuspecting people in the woods of the Bennington area was capable of being more patient and careful than a rogue Sasquatch or a hungry big cat. One of the most popular theories behind the Bennington Triangle cases is that a serial killer is behind several, if not all five, of the missing persons. It could be that some psychopath, armed with great knowledge of the area, used the trails and roads around the Bennington area and Glastonbury Mountain as his own sadistic hunting grounds. If any type of creature could somehow attack and abduct a person from the trails without leaving any trace, I believe only a fellow human could be capable of pulling it off. Other theories are even more far-fetched than the previously mentioned Bigfoot, including interdimensional portals or spontaneous wormholes opening up and literally swallowing these people whole, virtually erasing them from this existence in one instant. Also, as usual, in such random disappearances, there is also the explanation that the area was used by UFOs and extraterrestrials, but once again, there is little to go on with any of these possible solutions as being credible concerning this case. Rather, in my opinion, I think one of the most likely culprits is just the Bennington area itself, and the nature surrounding each of these missing people's cases. As we saw with the Frida Langer case, it would seem that she somehow quietly and quickly died somewhere in the few hundred yards going back to her campsite after falling in the stream and that her body was left undetected for months, despite exhaustive searches of the very same area that she laid undiscovered. As we have covered in several other cases in Strange Matters, such as the Aoki Gohar Forest in Japan, or as it's better called, the Suicide Forest, in a thick woods or forest area, a body could go undetected for years, even decades, before finally being found. It is possible that, just like Frida Langer, perhaps Mitty Rivers or Paula Weldon's bodies, are also laying somewhere in the Bennington Woods, just waiting to be found one day. To me, I personally think this explanation that all these people in one way or another just died out in nature is more likely than some of the other theories, though I can definitely see the reasoning behind some of them. It could also be that there's just no common thread between these five cases, and that each one of them suffered a different fate. Perhaps one got lost and died in the woods, another murdered by a human killer, another by a mountain lion, or one even stepped into a portal and fell into another dimensional plane. Who knows? Regardless of that, the extremely bizarre and strange circumstances surrounding these five disappearances are what makes the legend of the Bennington Triangle such a fascinating case, and one that will likely intrigue people for many years to come. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have any feedback concerning the topics in this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to send us a message at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com, or look up our Facebook or Twitter pages. You can also visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can comment on, download, and listen to all of our episodes. For those who would like to support our show, 
We have a Patreon page where you can donate monthly to the podcast. Those donating to our Patreon also get access to a monthly exclusive episode. If any of you listeners would like to support Strange Matters, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash strangematters or click on the support us page on our website. Lastly, we ask if you are listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to give us a rating and a review. It means a lot to us and it also helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. With all that said, until the next episode of Strange Matters, take care everyone.